Um, well, good morning. Uh, I am so privileged to be back with you this morning. Uh, title of the message today is Fix Your Focus. Somebody say, I'm fixing my focus. All right, y'all did way better than first service. Good job. The passage we're in today is 2 Corinthians. We're going to look at chapter 13. Chapter 13, verse 11, we're in 2 Corinthians. This is the closing passage of Paul's second letter, well, really his third letter uh, to the church in Corinth. It's his farewell remarks, and it says this, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss as all the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Just pray for one more moment with me. Holy Spirit, we welcome you into this place. God, have your way with us. We open our ears and our eyes to see and to hear what you are speaking this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I'm the youngest of four brothers. Uh, so you can feel sorry for my mom, but you can do that after service. I'm the youngest of four brothers, uh, and I grew up with a fairly, you know, uh, standard youngest sibling uh, experience. Uh, I was picked on a fair amount, beat up a fair amount, no more than I think anybody else as a youngest sibling, but I was manipulated a whole lot. I was talked out of a lot of things I thought were good for me and talked into a lot of things that were bad for me. For some reason, I always ended up being the guinea pig. For some reason, I, I, did, I was really raised with this environment that, that it really was better to share with your siblings and to give up what you have. And I found myself often with nothing <laughs> and them having double dessert. And I'm going, what just happened to me? Uh, but that's okay. I'm not throwing a pity party up here. Um, I'm the youngest, so I'm also my parents' favorite. So... Um, it's fine. Uh, that didn't always jive with my brothers, though. They didn't always like that. You know, um, I never got punished, not nearly as bad. Um, definitely got preferential treatment. I also think I earned it, but that's another story for another day. Um, but I was the youngest, and uh, so I took my fair share of abuse. Um, but I took it standing up. You know, I didn't, I didn't all run and cry to mom and dad and, and all of that. And if you're a younger sibling, uh, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, because just because you take the abuse doesn't mean you've submitted to the authority and the tyranny of your older siblings. See, a youngest sibling is never just standing still. We are always lying in wait <laughs> for a perfect moment for vengeance. A moment like this moment that we're in right now. As I get to share with you a story about one of my siblings that I really hope doesn't embarrass them. Uh, <laughs> I'll leave him nameless. There's only three of them, so, though, so you've got a good chance at guessing which one it is, if you know my family. Uh, one of my brothers, uh, many years ago, was in a season of transition and unemployment. Some of the dreams and aspirations he had for his life, they didn't pan out the way he thought that they would. Some uh, roads came to a dead end, and he was back in the States after pursuing an overseas athletic career. He uh, didn't have a job, didn't know what his next step was, didn't know where he should turn to next. And he found himself substitute teaching at a local elementary school, which is a noble and worthwhile profession, except for the fact that my brother has no background or education in educating youth. But whatever, he was serving the children. That's not what's embarrassing about this, because 
While my brother pretended to be a school teacher during the day, what he did at night in my parents' basement was search the internet to learn the tips, techniques, and pageantry of close-up magic. How to make a card disappear behind your hand, how to do card tricks for people. And you must understand, as a McGraw brother, men of great renown and ambition, men of great skill and passion, to be huddled in your parents' basement, learning something like close-up magic. So there's no place for a McGraw man to be. Now, unfortunately, what happens when one of your siblings learns close-up magic is you, by default, are subjected to learn about close-up magic. I will not be doing any tricks today. So sorry. I know. But I did learn two things that I think are applicable to what we're going to talk about today. If you don't want to fall victim to a magician performing a card trick, two things that will always give you the upper hand. The one is very obvious. You've got to know the technique if you know the tips and the tricks and the techniques, you know what to look for. And if you've ever seen a magic trick explained, it's always like a bit of a letdown. You're like, oh, that was it? Okay, that's cool. Very rarely are you going like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. But if you know the technique, then you know where to look. Which is the second, second thing you've got to know. You've got to know where to look. See, sleight of hand is all about misdirection. Make you look right while I'm doing something left. Make you look low while I'm doing something high. Putting it behind my back, moving it around. It's all about getting you to pull your focus off of what matters so the thing that matters goes unnoticed. If you know the technique and if you know where to look, you'll never fall victim to a charlatan like my brother, <laughs> whom I love dearly and was one of my biggest supporters. So I think that, is something we can, uh, we can apply to this passage that we just read. You see, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth now. This is his fourth interaction with them that we have a record of. Four major moments of ministry does Paul do. First, he writes the letter of 1 Corinthians. He receives a bad report from someone in the church, and so he writes this letter to them. And he's admonishing them and rebuking them and correcting them and saying, you've allowed division in the church of God. You've allowed comparison and, and one-upsmanship and segments of people that think they're better than others. You've allowed that to proliferate throughout your church. You're comparing spiritual gifts. Meanwhile, you've got sin running rampant and you're not even addressing it. You're just co-signing it. Come on. And he rebukes them and he corrects them and he sets them straight. It's a doozy of a letter. And then we find out that after he sends that letter, we read it in the second Corinthians that uh, we read from today, that he actually... Uh, paid them a visit, and he calls it a painful visit, which is all you need to know about how that thing went. It wasn't a visit he looked forward to. We've got to have a crucial conversation, talk about some difficult things, church. And he followed up his painful visit with a tearful letter. We don't have the tearful letter, but he mentions it in 2 Corinthians. In the other letter I wrote to you, through tears, Paul embracing and walking in, the, in just the grief and the, just their off course and then he follows the tearful letter up with the letter of 2 Corinthians. These are monumental moments in a church's history. I mean, these are major moments. We're on the verge here. We're going to be planting these churches uh, downtown in Washington, D.C. We've got a number of church plants all over the nation currently. And it would be like us getting a letter from Bishop Brett or us getting a letter from Pastor Steve Merle, the president of our Every Nation family. And I had to stand up here and read to you their thoughts about our misaligned doctrine. 
about the sin that we've allowed to run rampant in our church and never correct, about how we're off course and we need to humbly repent and get back on course. And then he follows that up with a visit and he says all that in person, like we would be marked forever with this moment, would you not? I don't want anything to do with that. And yet here we find ourselves in the Corinthian church, four major moments of correction. And what is Paul's ultimate point? One of his points, I think, is that they've fallen victim to the devil's misdirection. They got their focus pulled off the things that didn't matter, and they missed the goodness and the grandeur of the gospel. They've allowed internal things to divide them and to tear them apart. They've not focused on the truth. And I think there's about three ways, there's many more I'm sure, but I think there's three important ways that we fall victim. Just like the Corinthian church did, we fall victim to the devil's misdirection. I think the first one is distraction. It's been said before, I'll just say it again. The devil doesn't need to destroy you to defeat you, he just needs to distract you. He does not need to destroy your life in order to defeat you. He just needs to distract you. He just needs to get you more interested in your Instagram than on his word. He just wants you to get to the end of the day and just desire some Netflix or some Disney+. Plus. He wants you at the end of the day to be so consumed with the news and the media sources of the day that you feed off that as though it's fulfilling you. You just get distracted. You're just looking the wrong way. Many of us, we find ourselves distracted and we're fighting these culture wars within our church and we think that issue of the day is the primary thing the church should be talking about all day, every day, and we forsake and forget the beauty and the majesty of the core of the gospel and what it should be producing in us. We just get distracted. Some of us, we get so downward distracted, we only see ourselves We never see anybody else in the church. We've never empathized with another person's problem. We're just, our problems are too big and we just get distracted by ourselves. It's the devil's misdirection. It's a subtle sleight of hand. You don't even know that you're doing it, but you fall, you fall victim to it. The good news is Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But what the devil can't destroy, he will try to corrupt which is a second way we fall victim to the devil's misdirection, is division. We allow ourselves to be divided over everything, and we don't even try to reconcile. We push ourselves to the extreme, and we're happy there because there's people there that are like us. And we don't have to worry about these people over here. We're just going to stay divided where we're at. You know, more people today are choosing churches based on ideological alignment than on theological accuracy. You know that? More people leaving the church today are finding a new church, picking a new church based on ideological agreement. Do you agree with my politics, my economics, my social platform? Then we can be family. It doesn't really matter what the word says about it, but what you say about it matters. And here's, I just, with all grace, you guys, (laughs) your opinion on these matters doesn't matter that much to me. I say that with grace. Just, I know, like, hey, but let me finish the thought. (laughs) It's not your opinion I'm after. And I hope you're not after my opinion. 
I hope my opinion on these things doesn't matter because I've had a lot of wrong opinions before that this word has corrected. I'm after this opinion. I'm after what this word says to me. And if it's going to correct me and rebuke me and tell me that I'm wrong in my opinion, I'm going to bow down to it and subject myself to it because it's not my thoughts or your thoughts I'm after. It's the doctrine found in scripture. It's theology. It's truth revealed to us about who God is and what God has to say. And yet we allow ourselves to be divided by everything. But we're a church that believes in the spiritual unity of the believers. It's one of our tenets of faith. And we hold it in high regard and high esteem. We fight for unity and for reconciliation. But the third way we fall victim to the devil's misdirection is just all of this is too much. It's too much, man. There's too much news. There's too much opinions. There's too much back and forth. And we just fall victim to apathy. We just stop caring at some point. We just kind of throw our hands up and go, I, 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 I don't know. And something I think about a lot, a lot, is that because I know there are people who will tell me to my faith that they believe that God exists, that they believe Jesus exists. They would even go so far to say they believe Jesus was resurrected from the dead. Which if you don't know, church, we believe crazy stuff. Like that's not a, you might have been around church so much you've just kind of gotten familiar with it. But that's what we believe. We believe that God came to earth in the form of a man, was killed, and then resurrected. And there's people that will stand here and say, yeah, definitely, I believe that for sure. And I'm not going to do anything about it, though. I just wrestle with that because if there's a God who speaks creation, who knows every hair on your head, who knit you together in your mother's womb, who has plans and purposes for you, who has sent his son to redeem you, and we go, yeah, that's great, man. Yeah. Don't make me be discipled, though. Don't make me join a small group, though. Don't make me come to church on Wednesday night. Don't make me join a prayer meeting. Why would I want to pray to a God like that, man? You know what I do on Friday nights? And yet this is how many of us we fall victim to the misdirection of apathy. We think we found some middle ground in society. Like, no, I'm definitely a Christian, but I'm not going to engage in the battles. I'm going to be right here. But where we've landed, not all of us, some of us, not all of us, is this apathetic middle ground where we confess something to be true with our mouth, but nothing in our life agrees with that. And what is our greatest witness? Not our words, but the way that we act behind our words. It's a subtle sleight of hand. It's a misdirection. He got us looking one way thinking it's the right thing, but he's doing something over here. It's killing us. I think this is what's happened in the Corinthian church. I think it's happened in our church. Every church. It's not a condemnation on Grace Covenant. This is the finest church I've ever been a part of, and I say that with all sincerity. But it's the game of misdirection. And it happens. But what is Paul's response to it well first of all just like a magic trick when you know the game you realize it's not really that impressive right it's not like i said anything up here that's like blowing your mind you're going oh my gosh aj the church is divided i had no idea what you just opened my eyes to something you tell me i get too tired to read my bible you're reading my mail brother how'd you know that i fall asleep when i pray how'd you know that None of this is revolutionary. None of this is mind-blowing. It's the simple sleight of hand. It's the simple tricks. They're not that impressive. 
And so Paul finishes his closing remarks in 2 Corinthians 13. He says, finally, brothers, rejoice. Rejoice. Have joy. You might have fallen victim to the misdirection, but that doesn't mean you're lost. Celebrate. God redeems moments like this. It's the business that he's in. Rejoice. Help is on the way. Can I just say that to you? If you're feeling condemned or you're feeling like, ugh, hey, rejoice. God is not done. Jesus got out of the grave. His mission is to redeem his people in his church. It's not over. It's not finished. There is hope for us yet. So rejoice. Now, fix your focus. Paul says, aim at restoration. Aim to be restored. That word means made complete. Aim at being made complete, at being made full for what God has designed you to be made for. Aim at his restoration. You have to fix your focus. I, um, I grew up in an athletic family, uh, which may be a shock to you, but that would be very insulting. Um, <laughs> uh, me and my brothers, we played all kinds of sports. My sport of choice was basketball. Uh, it was my favorite sport to play. Uh, and you can see my persuasion, and I will admit I fall victim to most of the stereotypes associated with a person of my persuasion playing the game of basketball. It's fine. Came to terms with it a long time ago. Couldn't run very fast, couldn't jump very high, but thank the good Lord Almighty, I also couldn't shoot the basketball. Worth 10 cents. Wayne Gretzky says you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. I missed 100% of the shots I did take. Okay. It's just the reality. I know my limitations, but thank goodness I had a father who was a coach and who was very patient and was a teacher to me. And he helped me understand the fundamentals of a jump shot. Balance, tuck your elbow in, extend high, follow through. But one thing unlocked my jump shot for me is when he told me, you aim at the front of the rim, not the middle of the rim, not the back of the rim, not the backboard, you aim at the front of the rim. I said, all right, we'll try it. Whatever, Dad. What kind of voodoo magic did you just do to me? Let me try this again. That was a fluke. It was like the game was unlocked for me. I had never had this experience before. Because I had my sights set at the right target. And what happens when you set your sights at the right target, everything else begins to kind of fade away around you. You stop thinking about the defenders. You stop thinking about the fundamentals. You let what happens naturally flow out of you. I hope you're hearing this on two levels right now. You fix your sights on the right thing and everything else that doesn't matter begins to fade away. And you let what happens naturally be produced out of you. And you start building some confidence. You start walking in some clarity and some focus and some purpose because you've got your sights set on the right target. Many of us is where we're at today. We've fallen victim to the game of distraction or division or to apathy and God is calling us to wake up, center yourself, refocus yourself, fix your eyes on me. That's what Paul says. Aim for being restored. Now, the thing about aiming is aiming is all about intent. Aiming is about what you intend to hit. And just because you intend to hit something doesn't mean you hit it every time. Now, the problem comes in the church because when you miss your target in the church, you don't just miss the target. You normally hit people. 
It's one of the, just the difficulties of being the body of Christ together. Your aim might be right. Occasionally you miss, and you rarely miss alone. You usually hit somebody. It's just the reality. We're human. It's not even someone's fault. It's nothing to be critical about. It's just the reality of flawed humanity. Now, I've been around this church for a long time. I've walked with the leaders and the pastors, not just in services, but at their, di- at their uh, dinner tables, with their children, with their spouses. I can say with certainty, our aim is good. Our sights are set on the right thing. But we're human. Sometimes we miss the mark. You hang around me long enough, I'm going to miss the mark. And I will let you down. And I will fail to deliver on an expectation. I will say something carelessly that offends you. And I'm just going to need your grace for it. I can tell you now it's going to happen. I promise you. But my aim is good. My intent is right. And this is why, as the church, we need to be anchored not in the work of man, but in the word of God. Because when man lets us down, and we're not sure if we can go on, if we're not sure if we can bear with it anymore, we remember God's words to Paul that my grace, my grace is sufficient for you, and my power is made perfect in your weakness. When there's a fence between us, we remember the words of Jesus that says, you forgive each other the way that I forgave you. Not the way that you want to forgive. You forgive each other the way that I forgive you. We remember the words of scripture that say we are to be patient and humble and to bear with one another. And we remember the words of scripture that says bear one another's burdens. One another's burdens. That's how you fulfill the law of Christ. We become anchored in the word of God. Because you will eventually hit a target that you're aiming at. But you will never hit a target that you don't aim at. You'll eventually hit it if your sight is set on the right thing, but you'll never hit it if your aim is off. So my question to you this morning is what are your sights set on? What are you aiming at? What is your focus fixed on? In this Christian walk, in this church, in this journey of faith that you're on, what is your goal with it? What are you hoping to get out of it? What are you hoping to give to it? At the end of the day, when all is said and done, what is your purpose on this journey? What are your eyes fixed on? Paul says we ought to aim to be restored to God, to be made complete. That's what my eyes are on, y'all. I want to be all God made me to be. I want to be seen as complete in his eyes, full of my purpose, walking in my identity, accomplishing all that he has set out before me. I want to be restored to him. I think that's where we ought to sit our eyes. And so we come to this moment. We get caught in the devil's misdirection, 2 Corinthians, the church there, same thing is happening. And Paul ends his remarks with this. I'll read it one more time. He's had these four epic moments of ministry, of correction, of rebuke, and he closed. He says, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace together, greet one another with a holy kiss. Here's what Paul knows. Paul knows that these moments, these letters, this painful visit, this tearful letter, 2 Corinthians, these moments are going to generate some momentum. In fact, they're designed to do just that. It's designed to elicit a response, to generate some action and some movement in us. We preach the word of God for the same reason. 
not to sound good or to be smart, but that it might spark a response in you, that you might see the goodness of God, hear his word, feel his presence, and be inspired to move, to go, to do. These moments, they create momentum, but momentum unsustained will run out. Every ball that rolls will come to an end and will stop. But what does Paul say? Comfort one another. Love one another. Live at peace with one another. Greet one another. Paul knows that although moments create momentum, community changes lives. And the thing that's going to sustain your momentum, that's going to push you day in and day out, is not your own will. Trust me, I'd be benching 350 right now if it was all by my own willpower. Who is going to help me when I'm distracted and I'm focused on the wrong issue? When I'm too far in to all this new Marvel and Star Wars content on Disney Plus, somebody help me. (laughs) Who is going to snap me out of it? It's not me, I promise you that. When I'm divided with a brother or tempted to divide over an issue, who is going to push me to reconcile? And then who am I going to reconcile with? Can't do it by myself. It's going to happen with one another. When I'm feeling like giving up, I'm apathetic. I don't want to go on. I don't want to try, man. It's just too hard. Who is going to speak life to me and encourage me and motivate me and push me? I just am telling you guys, I don't have that type of self-motivation. I just don't have that level of willpower for every moment of every day. But I have a community of believers around me. I got some great friends who call me up when I'm low and they pull me up and they push me. They speak life to me. This is what Paul's saying. Yeah, man, you got caught in the misdirection, but don't worry. Rejoice. Have faith. It's okay. How do we break free from the devil's misdirection? We break free together. These are our one another's. Paul says, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace together, greet one another. This is our playbook. This is what it looks like to live as a restored people. The Greek word here is aleilon. Someone say aleilon. All right, great job. Just making sure you're with me. Aleilon is used 100 times in the New Testament. Paul uses it three times in this sentence. Aleilon means one another. And just base value, when you just hear those two facts, what does that tell you about the expression of our faith? That it happens individually or that it happens together? Happens together. Each time a leilon is used, it's preceded by a command or a verb. Love one another. Be devoted to one another. Build up one another. Accept one another. Submit to one another. Forgive one another. In John 13, Jesus gives us his greatest commandment or his new commandment. He says, a new commandment I give to you. John 13, 34, read it with me. It says this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, so also are you to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. The Bible is clear. This isn't just something we're supposed to do. It doesn't just edify us, but this is Jesus' prayer over the church, that we would be together, one to another, that we would love one another, that we would experience the fullness of his love for us. And he takes it a step further and says, this is how the world is going to know that you're mine, by your love. You thank God. We can thank God. Don't leave it them hanging. 
I just preach to this side of the room then. It's by our love. Not by your platform, not by your programming, not by your presentation, not by your pulpit, not by your other P's. By your love. By your love. And where do we express love for one another? This moment is really hard for me to do it. I can tell you I love you. I can speak truth to you, which is an expression of love. But how do you know that I'm committed to you? How do you know that I hold you in high regard as a brother or a sister in Christ? It's very hard for me to do that well from up here. It's very hard for me to do that well in a, in a you know, quick conversation in the lobby. How am I to comfort one another? I might you know, happen to speak into the right issue you're going through today, and that might bring you some comfort, but i got to be honest, that's the Holy Spirit, not me. If I'm going to comfort you, i got to be in your text messages and on the phone and on your couch, close, nearby. If I'm going to build you up, if I'm going to forgive you, it's just very hard, you guys, to do it from up here. In Acts 5, verse 42, we get a glimpse at how the church is to operate. A simple verse, almost a forgetful verse. You just kind of read it and you glance right by it. But take a look at it with me. It's on the screen. Every day, Acts 5.42, every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Remember, the church is not a building. The church is a people. So where does the church operate? Every day in the temple, consider this the temple, the church building, every day in the temple and from house to house. So where do we navigate the one another's? House to house. Family to family, over a dinner table, through a meal, through a get-together on a Friday night. How do we become reconciled over our differences and our divisions? On the couch, around a table. Because how can I see past what I think is prejudice to see the fear and the pain beneath if I hold you at an arm's distance? How would I ever reconcile with a single person if I didn't let them in? Yet this is our strategy. It's the misdirection. Just don't engage, man. You just won't feel any pain and then it'll be fine. Just don't worry about it. Yet we are called to be more than that. We have our sights set on restoration, on reconciliation. How are we to be the renewed people of God if we are not the people of God together? The church happens in the temple and house to house. That is where we love one another. That is where we're devoted to one another. That's where we build one another up. That's where we forgive one another. That's where we grow with one another. And let me just close with this thought. I've been singing this song all week. It's just, it's been stuck in my head the entire time I was working on this message. It's a song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. It goes like this. I'm not going to sing it, but I'll read it to you. You want to talk about ruining a moment. It says this. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this world will grow strangely dim in light of his glory and grace. What are our eyes set upon? What is our focus fixed upon? 
Paul admonishes us, aim at being restored to God. Fix your eyes on the one man who ever truly was. Look upon the face of the one who left heaven for earth, who suffered and died out of sacrifice and out of love for each one of us. Fix your eyes on that. And the things of this world, they grow strangely dim. The misdirection of the enemy seems strangely foolish. Desire to move and to act begins to fire when we fix our eyes upon Jesus. And I know, church, that this is what we were made for because Paul's closing benediction, his final verse, he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. How do we live as a redeemed people, as a people restored to God? We look at the example that we have in the Godhead. The grace shown to us by Jesus Christ. Grace is favor that you didn't earn. It's getting something you don't deserve. And it is by grace, if we believe in faith, that we are saved. And we who have received the grace of Jesus can now be distributors of grace in this world. We who have received the love of God, not a love based on performance, not a love based on emotion, not a love based on how you made him feel that day, but a love based on a decision. Love is a commitment shown through action. And has not God shown through his actions his faithful love to you? And so we, as those who have received the love of God, can now become distributors of the love of God. And we have the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, the personal presence of the person of God walking with us day by day. We who walk with God in fellowship with God can now fellowship one to another in a true and a righteous and a good fellowship. And in the community of the Trinity is this mutual life-giving love and respect and honor, each part fully God, each part distinct from the others, the greatest enigma in our faith. One God, yet three persons. And in the self-sustaining love and life explodes the creative energy of God and come all of us, made in his image, made in his likeness, to exist in the same type of fellowship that he exists in within himself, by the grace of Jesus, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. So this is a moment. With what little I've got, I'm trying to give to you. I'm trying to inspire some movement and some response and some reaction. I'm trying to cultivate by the word of God something sparking on the inside of you to do something. But moments just create momentum. And momentum unsustained will run out. And we cannot live like Christian drug addicts going from one hit to the next to the next. It is the fellowship of the believers that will transform our hearts and our minds. Why? Because I read somewhere in my Bible that when two or three gather, somebody shows up. And somebody will dwell among us. And it is not people that will change you. Quit trying to let them and quit trying to change people. It's not what you've called, been called to do. You've been called to love one another, 
comfort one another, live at peace with one another, greet one another with a holy kiss. That's what you've been called to do. The work of the Holy Spirit is to transform hearts. And yet when we gather, the Holy Spirit joins us, Christ joins us, and he does the creative life-giving work among us. Does he not? So, let us fix our focus. Let us set our sights on things above. Let us aim to be a people restored first to God and then to one another. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we love you and we adore your goodness and your faithfulness and your loving kindness. God, we don't deserve it. Yet you are rich and abundant and generous with it. Help us to be a people who see the schemes of the enemy for exactly what they are. And let us fix our eyes upon you, Jesus. And with our focus, give us clarity. Allow the things of this world to fade away from our vision. And let that which comes naturally by a life devoted to the love of God produce life, not just in us, but through us for all those around us. I'm going to give you a moment to respond today if you've never given your life to Jesus, if you've never accepted the free gift of salvation that Christ afforded you on the cross. And today you want to make that decision. You want to start or you want to restart your journey of faith with God. That you just throw your hand up just very confidently and brazenly like you really got a lot of faith. And if you're online, would you just click that raise your hand button in the chat? so we can know that that's you. Amen.